as was mentioned previously, how thankful we each can be as we have uttered that thought in prayer and even in some of the initial statements that Brother Gary made in his announcements. We're certainly delighted that God has allowed us the privilege and, yea, the high honor of meeting together to exalt His name and His will in this aspect of worship. Surely, as we continue to think of so many who would like to be with us but cannot due to health reasons, we can trust then that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man indeed availeth much. James chapter 5, verse 16. You may have noted as the lesson text was read a moment ago, as Vestal read that for us from Proverbs 15, 32, that a portion of that verse was entitled, or at least had within it, despising one's own soul. And I would invite you to at least think with me for the next few moments about some aspects of that verse and the nature of its application in your life and in mine this day. Perhaps to begin, we could certainly say this. We each understand, and the Bible presents it so powerfully, that the human spirit is that which is immortal. Namely, that you and I appreciate that unlike those of the animal kingdom, you and I will never cease to be. From that moment of our conception forward, we're destined to live forevermore somewhere beyond the realms of this flesh in a place recognized as a blissful and glorious place called heaven, or on the other hand, as an utterly indescribably awful place called hell. And yet as we think about that immortality of the Spirit, we immediately recognize then what folly, what foolishness there would be in despising one's own soul. In fact, would there be anything more foolish than to despise one's own immortal spirit, to have little regard for it, to treat it as somewhat despicable? And yet the Bible warns us that it is possible to despise it. It's possible to give it little attention. It's possible, in fact, to behave in a way that brings it to its eternal ruin. Although many things might be said to be a part of living so foolishly, the verse before us today mentions one particular thing, and it is to that that we'll turn our attention for the remainder of the lesson this morning. Despising one's own soul. As we begin that discussion, why don't we revisit that text, casting the spotlight on the words that are found therein, and then using the remainder of the lesson following that to apply that which we learn. Again, that verse before us, Proverbs 15, verse number 32 it says, He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. I have written on the slide the American Standard translation of that same passage of Scripture, and you may notice in that presentation a word or two seems to make that verse a little bit easier for you and me to easily appreciate. He that refuseth correction despiseth his own soul. But he that hearkeneth to reproof getteth understanding. The definitions, the meanings, if you please, of some of the words in that verse I've listed for consideration, just to make sure that we easily and thoroughly understand what the inspired writer from so long ago had to say. As Solomon penned these words ages and ages ago now, we understand his wisdom in the realm of human appreciation, and in his presentation, notice his choice of words. First of all, that word refuse. As, you, as it appears near the outset of that verse, that word simply means to ignore, basically, or to neglect. You'll notice another word that appears also in that same passage. 
is one that perhaps challenges us to ensure that the usage of these words is what we are easily appreciative of. I've listed two additional verses. In Proverbs 1.25, as well as Proverbs 8.33, that same Hebrew word is employed, and it's clear enough in those passages that it has to do with the way that one responds toward instructions or to rebuke or reproof that is given by another. You'll notice furthermore that word correction. That word correction means, in fact, discipline, chastening, or in fact, very easily, the same word correction. We seem to be seeing then that this verse touches the response of an individual to the words of rebuke or words of correction that another might exhibit or at least direct toward him or toward her. And to ensure that that's the case, let's continue to study and look at some of those additional words. The word despiseth. That word formally means to treat with little esteem, that is to say, to esteem rather lightly, or in fact, to openly and very explicitly despise. Furthermore, the word hearkeneth. That word literally means to listen with effectiveness. That is to say, to listen effectively, to pay attention to. In some particular passages, clearly it means to obey. The word reproof. That really is a close word to that previous occurrence in the verse. Here it means to, to that which is reproof, that which is correction, that which is literally that of rebuke. Finally, that word understanding. It has to do with wisdom of heart, literally one's appreciation of maturity as it relates to understanding. So putting all that together, what have we seen? Again, he that ignores correction despises or esteems lightly his own soul. But on the other hand, he that listens attentively and listens carefully gets wisdom, gets understanding. Solomon thus had much to say in warning for you and for me about the way in which we approach to rebuke that another may direct toward us. Reproof or words of instruction, words of correction that will in fact be the remainder of the subject of our study this morning. Isn't it true that all of us find ourselves in need of words of wisdom like this? Because none of us in this flesh are perfect. None of us always think everything we should, do everything we should, behave in every way we should. To say that differently, we're guilty in one way or another of faults, failures, shortcomings, and sins. There is no man that sinneth not. Same gentleman Solomon made that statement in 1 Kings 8.46. Paul affirmed it like so in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our Savior in Mark chapter 7 made reference to a listing of sinful behaviors and of them, one of them was sinful thoughts. And those sinful thoughts as it manifests itself in various activities that are not to be approved, often others ask us about it. They bring it to our attention. They challenge us. And how do we react when they do? We realize so often that Sometimes individuals who love us very much, be it our spouse, our children, maybe someone very close to us, maybe it's someone who's concerned for our well-being on the job, maybe it's even someone like the God of heaven who through His Word is ultimately concerned with our eternal well-being. And in each of these instances, 
matters of rebuke, stern warnings are directed our way, how do we react? The inspired writer said, if we, in fact, ignore it, if we, in fact, consider it so very un insignificant and unimportant, we, in essence, are despising our own soul. As we think more clearly about that, you'll note the bottom of that slide brings to our attention, especially in the family, parents often have words of admonition, words of discipline, words of correction for their children. And yea, isn't it true, all of us find it so in life that we face the same thing. What are some then applications that you and I can appreciate relative to how we respond to, to this very thing? It would seem in light of the Word of God that the responses are you and I may react in one of three ways. First of all, when someone has words of correction for me or for you, one of the things that can be so easily done is to just openly and outright ignore it. Pretend as if there's nothing to it. Pretend as if the person really doesn't have any idea what he or she is saying and just wash it off in the sense of absolutely neglect it. Another possibility, though, is we could try to discredit the one who rebukes us. We can try, in essence, to belittle him or to, in fact, insult her and do so in a way that we try thus to discredit them and in their person to thus have to pay no heed to what they've said regarding us. Perhaps finally, there is that third opportunity, that third potential reaction. It is the one where we do at least pay attention. We give it serious consideration. We try to take to heart what is noteworthy and noble about it. Those three kinds of reactions, isn't it interesting that we from so often appreciate how often we find ourselves in the position to respond in one way or the other? Let's look at each one of them a bit more carefully. What about that circumstance in which we just neglect and ignore the rebuke? We have give it no heed, we pay it no attention, we in essence pretend it doesn't even exist. You'll notice the Word of God gives us a number of examples of those who did that. Examples of individuals who chose to react in that way and perhaps it would be well worth our while to ask what motivated that kind of reaction and what ultimately came out of it. Let's revisit the book of 1 Kings for a moment. In 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, you and I recall that Solomon at that time had basically on the verge of passing away and the next king that would follow him would be his son Rehoboam. Interesting, isn't it, that during the reign of Solomon, we well remember that Solomon taxed the people extraordinarily highly. Remember, Solomon had a number of building ventures, a number of plans and very extensive extravagant buildings that he wanted to build. Among them the temple, among them his own palace, among them a number of other activities that required building as well. To fund all of those projects, Solomon taxed the people very, very highly. The people, in fact, became a bit unnerved by it, became very dissatisfied with it. When Solomon passed away, one of the first things the people did with regard to Rehoboam was they approached him and said, Please lighten our burden so that the taxation rates will be a bit less. Solomon, or rather Rehoboam, said, Go away and come back in three days and I'll give you my answer. 
In that period of three days, Rehoboam first asked counsel of the old men, those who had been the former advisors of his father Solomon, those who were well in tune to the disbursements of the people. Those older men said, Hearken and listen carefully to them and they'll serve you all the days of your life. Solomon wasn't, or rather Rehoboam wasn't entirely pleased with that advice. And thus, he also got some secondary advice. Other counsel from the younger, younger advisors, those that were his own age, those that you see were his closest associates. Their advice was this, you increase the tax rates. Just as surely as Solomon taxed them heavily, you tax them even more so. So much so that when they come to you again, you say to them, Just as surely as my little finger would be representative of the tax rates of my father, I will be much like this whole size of your loins. And so when the people returned, Rehoboam gave to them the advice that those younger people had given him. He ignored completely the advice of the older men. He ignored completely what they had to say. And in so doing, what was it that happened to the kingdom? As the rest of that chapter unfolds before us, it spiraled downhill to a terribly woeful condition. The people revolted against Rehoboam. In fact, they split off and the kingdom was divided. The ten southern, or rather the ten northern tribes founded what was to you and me known as Israel in the southern kingdom with only two tribes. Judah and Benjamin. How sad. Rehoboam, you see, took some bad advice. He ignored what so kindly had been given. He was unwilling to listen to it. He despised, you see, his own soul in that regard. Maybe another example. In Jeremiah 6, verse 16, far later in the Old Testament, we've now advanced around 320 years or so the children of Israel now found themselves also on the brink of annihilation in the sense of great difficulty and problem. God through Jeremiah said, Thus saith the Lord. You'll notice that verse starts with such majesty and such power. Thus saith the Lord. Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old, old paths, where is the good way and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. As hard and as difficult and as challenging as things were, God through the people said, If you'll seek the old paths, don't give your thoughts and your attention to these newfangled ways of unrighteousness, ungodliness, and immorality. You follow the tried and true paths of goodness and righteousness set forth from the God of heaven. The closing statement of that verse reads it like this. This is the people's retort. We will not walk therein. They completely rejected and refused and ignored the counsel that God through the prophet Jeremiah had given them. What happened to them? In less than 35 years, they were hauled off into Babylonian captivity. Forcibly removed from the land they had loved. They had watched their temple ransacked and burned to the ground all because they were foolish enough, filled with enough folly to ignore the counsel, the wisdom that had been shared toward them. What about another example? Perhaps in the New Testament we see this interesting development. Jesus Himself as well as many of the New Testament writers expressed the interest and the needfulness to Jew and Gentile alike to respect and to obey the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts the 28th chapter, 
Paul, as he was there two years under house arrest, preached with great fervor and interest even to those Jews that would come. But what is it he affirmed near the close of that chapter? He quoted from Isaiah and he said, This people has closed their eyes, stopped their ears. They will not hear me. They ignored what Paul had to say to them. They were unwilling to give up the old law of Moses, unwilling to turn their attention to Jesus Christ and His gospel. What Paul say had happened? I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. They had had their opportunity. Can we not learn some valiant lessons in these opening three examples? Individuals who were given correction, instruction, and they chose to ignore it. And every time it resulted in their ruin. Every time it resulted in catastrophe. Every time it led to a worse state than what they were in at first. Perhaps you and I can thus learn as we close that slide that often if we just ignore instruction, if we pay it no mind or no heed, we may well be missing out on some of the best advice and counsel we'll ever receive. Especially as we give thought to the Bible, God, in fact, approaches all of us with rebuke. Mistakes, shortcomings, and failures in your life and mine, and He says that we need to make correction, repent of it, and draw ourselves, of course, near unto the God of heaven. May we never be foolish enough to ignore His advice, foolish enough to ignore His counsel, for one day we shall stand before Him in judgment, and there will then not be opportunity to heed it then. As you and I give thought to those things, what about another possibility? I stated earlier that not only is it possible to ignore the advice, it's also entirely possible to try to discredit the one that brings the counsel, the one who brings the instruction, the one who's striving to chasten us. Let's give a few moments of reflection to that behavior as well. May I say that it would seem to me, at least upon observation, this one is becoming far more occurring in our daily walk of life, especially in the political realm. One of the first things to do, rather than ever admit mistake, is to try to discredit the one who is questioning you. Our, our political friends seemingly do it all the time. May we say that not only is it possible, though, for them to do it, you and I can certainly be guilty of the same. What's involved in discrediting the one who's trying to chasten us? Calling into question that very attribute. You'll notice that quite often it basically involves just saving face. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong and I don't want to admit that I need correcting and so I'll try to hurt the reputation of, bring to naught that which another person brings to my attention. And I'll do it by insulting, belittling, blaspheming, and in fact, hurling great insults his or her way. As often as you and I see that kind of thing happening around us, what does the Bible have to say about it? Rather than truthfully admitting perhaps the correctness of what they say, I try to harm him or her. Let's develop that thought perhaps more carefully like this. Again, let's look at some examples. The Bible seems to have in mind many who themselves did this very thing. In John the 8th chapter, in the very preaching ministry of our Savior, Jesus Himself addressed those who were listening to Him on that occasion, and He did so with openness but with great directness. 
You may recall with me in that very chapter, they were so prideful, the Jews I mean, about their historical legacy. The fact they were descended from Abraham, the fact that they had the blessing of all of time relative from the days of Abraham onward. When Jesus made this statement, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8 verse 58, they were overwhelmed and overcome with anger and with wrath toward Him. How could this be? And yet Jesus had so carefully and so calmly laid out before Him the marvelous blessing of God on their behalf and urged them to respect Him as the Son of God. Those kind of words they were unwilling to receive. You'll notice in verse number 59 what they did. They picked up stones and were ready to cast them at Jesus. Rather than hear any reliability in the message, I'll destroy the messenger. Rather than take to heart anything the messenger had to say, I will bring him to ruin. That was their approach. We well remember that Jesus was able to escape the situation and He went away unharmed. But doesn't it speak volumes about the Jews? They wanted to destroy the messenger. In Acts the 7th chapter, we remember on that occasion, here Stephen was the gentleman before us. And Stephen, in fact, delivered to them one of the most beautiful and yet powerful summaries of the Old Testament to be found anywhere in all the Word of God. He took from the time of Abraham onward and developed in summary form everything in the rest of the Old Testament and did it in the span of about 40 verses. Isn't that incredible? As he did it, these were his main points. To those Jews before whom he addressed, he said, You remember Joseph. His brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery, but God raised him up. And through him, God delivered them. That was Old Testament truth, wasn't it? They did hate Joseph to the point they sold him. But God blessed him, raised him up to second in command of the Pharaoh. And it was through Joseph that God delivered them from the famine and saved them through those difficult Old Testament days. Second example, Moses. You may remember as Moses himself was born, he was reared ultimately in the household of the Pharaoh. And this powerful gentleman was such that he too was highly regarded in that day. But you remember that the people of Israel often rejected him. They often had little concern or interest for him even when he was the leader of them. Stephen, however, said this, Through Moses God delivered them. He led them out of Egyptian captivity and led them ultimately to the very brink of the land of Canaan. So far we've seen Moses and so far we've seen Joseph. In each case, God raised them up though the people rejected them. Third example, Jesus. You've rejected Him, but God raised Him up. And it'll be through Him that you'll be saved if you're saved at all. That cut them to the heart. Verse 51 says, In fact, they gnashed and languished upon Him. You do always reject the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter had, what Stephen had to say to them. You'll notice then five verses later, they picked up rocks and put to death the messenger. They couldn't stand the message rather than try to consider the truth in it and consider the powerful admonition found. They put to death the one that said it. How tragic. Maybe one final example. Those Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 verse 11. This people to whom the Apostle Paul had written, this is a set of individuals who so much 
had felt the blessing of God. And yet they tried in many cases, these false preachers, to discredit Paul. They wouldn't hear the good things he had to say, the truth in his words. They chose rather to try and discredit him. May I say that responding like this is absolute sinfulness. Jesus, in fact, said to us in Matthew 7, verse 12, All things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Would you and I want others to treat us that way? If we in kindness and in love bring words of admonition to someone else, perhaps words of correction and rebuke, we do it out of a sense of wanting them to be an improved individual, walking more closely in light of the blessed ways of God. And for them to turn around and hurl insults, perhaps harming us in almost irreparable ways, that's not a loving response. And we would not want them to do it to us. Why then would we do it to them? These examples we've seen perhaps highlight this as well. In all those examples we noted, it did not lead to anything good. It led, to, in fact, to harm, to disrepute. It led to, led to hardship and problem. So far in these two approaches we've noticed, on the one hand, ignoring the advice, on the other, openly trying to harm the one bringing it, the one that remains is the third one. You'll also appreciate with me, it's near the bottom of that slide. Remember, the inspired writer had said that if we listen carefully... Listen effectively, then we gain understanding. Let's use the latter part of our lesson to develop that thought a bit more carefully. Listening effectively, to strive to hear with honesty, to strive to admit, in fact, when there are failures and when there are mistakes. There are times each of us need to hear that well. We need to hear it because it will lead to improvements for ourselves, greater Christian service, greater opportunities to set a more powerful and influential example. As you can see on that slide, what about some more examples? Can you think of individuals in the Word of God who, when rebuked, listened carefully, listened with attention, listened with an idea to in fact extract what ought to be improved in his or her life? One of the greatest examples, it seems to me, must be David. In fact, there's one attribute of this that in fact touched me very deeply very recently, and I would, invite, I would take the opportunity to share it with you this morning. You recall the scene of David. David was a man who, as the second king of the ancient nation of Israel, occupied a position of tremendous leadership, an individual, in fact, who was such that all the kingdom was subject to him. But you remember well what happened in 2 Samuel 11. Here was a man who engaged in an adultery, a man who in fact engaged also in murder, putting to death the very husband of the one with whom he had had sexual relations, who was not his wife. As all of that developed and unfolded in that chapter, David was a man who tried to put himself above the very law of God. He had sinned. And yet, there's not the slightest mention in that chapter on his part of anything about an association with God or a nature of his responsibility to be the spiritual leader of the empire. The very next chapter opens, though, with a prophet being sent by God to confront David. 
We can easily imagine perhaps the fearfulness that would have occupied the person of Nathan. Here I am going before the most powerful man in the empire. He can order my death if he so chooses. He can order my imprisonment for life if he so chooses. And yet Nathan told to him a very moving story about a visitor who came to a rich man and yet rather than kill a lamb from his own flock, he went and took the only lamb of a neighbor friend of his. A lamb that was very dear to that man as well as his family. Upon hearing the story, David was overcome with anger and he said that ought not to have happened. Nathan in four words said, David, you are the man. You're the one that took in proverbial character a little lamb from a fellow who, who needed not have done so. You're the one that took his wife and you're the one that put him to death. Question, how did David react? Did he try to kill Nathan? Did he try to stone the messenger? Did he ignore the advice? Neither one. In the verses that follow, David listened with care. In fact, he even admitted, I have sinned. David took to heart the advice that Nathan gave him. He understood he had been wrong. He understood he had acted in ways that were displeasing to God and that repentance on his part was required. Psalm 51 is the inspired record of David's statement of repentance. But may I invite you to note one more thing. Later on, David, of course, had more children born to himself. It is a fascinating thing to me that among the future sons that would be born to David, one of them was named Nathan. David apparently named one of his sons after the very prophet who had rebuked him. Doesn't that indicate in very highness the esteem, the character, and the appreciation that David later felt for the courage and the words that Nathan had brought to him? May I say, you and I should be eternally thankful for somebody that loves us enough to chastise us, to bring something to my attention that's a fault or a failure on my part so that I can fix it, so that I can address it, so that I can repair it, so that I can repent of it if needed, so that I can be a stronger and better individual in future days. We ought to thank God for people who love us that much. It would seem David thought a great deal of Nathan if he named his own son after him. May we stay that that isn't the only example. As great as that example is, what about another one? On this slide, you can also appreciate with me an entire congregation in the New Testament era. You and I have noticed in our Sunday evening lessons on that book of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian congregation was beset with a host of problems. In fact, problems that were extremely troubling in, in many ways. The book of 1 Corinthians is a 16-chapter book in which Paul time and again brings to them the faults and the problems that they were facing and urges their correction urges their repentance, urges them to do things very differently. Is it not easy, or would it not have been easy for the Corinthian church to ignore what Paul said? That man lives far away from us. He doesn't know our problems. He doesn't know our circumstance. What right does he have to say anything to us? Is that what they did? Thanks be to God it was not. Another thing they might have done is to try to discredit him. He's not an apostle. What right does he have with any privilege to bring these words of rebuke to us? 
It is true, isn't it, that many times Paul said, I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 32 to 34 being one example. None of us like being called shameful. We don't like being told that we're a disgrace. Paul told them that. How did that Corinthian church react? All we need to do is look at 2 Corinthians. The next book in the New Testament, we have in this book 13 chapters of marvelous wonder illustrating the way in which they responded, but no place says it better than the 10th chapter of that book. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we notice interestingly, or rather chapter 7 through 10, but more carefully, that set of verses in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 7, those statements about how that Paul says, I made you sorry with a letter. But Paul says, I don't regret it. Because you have repented, and in fact that godly sorrow work of repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. That church took the words that Paul had directed their way. They repented of it. They changed their behavior, and they were thus drawn close unto the God of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? They took the counsel and the advice in the way Paul intended it. Today, I hope each of us could do the same. I hope that we too could appreciate perhaps one final example. What about Paul and Peter themselves? There was a time when Peter was in the wrong. There was a time that in Galatians chapter 2 beginning in verse 11, he himself acted in a way that was unbecoming of a Christian. He behaved in a way that was divisive, in a way that was improper, in a way that was not only inappropriate, it was sinful. When Paul came to town and recognized and observed and witnessed the behavior of Peter, Paul described it like this, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul said, I confronted him. Now's the question, how did Peter react to that scene? Did he hear the advice with effectiveness? Did he try to discredit Paul? Did he ignore what Paul had to say? It would seem from the later words in that chapter and from the words that Peter himself would later write. In 2 Peter 3 verses 15 and 16, he made reference to Paul and he said, Our beloved brother Paul. It would seem Peter did not hold a grudge. It would seem he did not hold out hatred and anger toward Paul for confronting him like this. He referred to him as a beloved brother. As we've looked at all these host of examples, it now begs the question of each of us individually. When you or I are confronted with correction, when you and I are faced with things others bring to our attention, how do we respond do we openly ignore it, neglect it, pretend it doesn't exist? Secondly, do we try to harm or discredit the one who brought that information to our attention and brought it to, to our, our consideration? Or thirdly, do we try to listen with care, pay attention to what's said, extract the good lessons that we can take from it, and try to be a stronger person? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a question that only each of us individually can answer for ourselves. May I say that of all the examples we've looked at, the first one was terrible. All three times of the examples we saw, it led to worse conditions when the advice was ignored. Secondly, when they tried to discredit the one that brought the counsel, that too led to terrible behaviors. But finally, in these last three cases, everything turned out great. Paul and Peter worked together. 
the Corinthian congregation did repent and was drawn closer to God. David named a son after Nathan. What about Randy Bybee? And what about you? When an elder or when a parent or when a friend or when an associate, when a fellow brother and sister in Christ lovingly brings something to our attention, how do we react? Do we do so in anger and wrath, ignoring what's said, pretending it doesn't exist, or in fact trying to hurt by reputation the one that said it? Or do we listen with care? Proverbs 15.32, the lesson text, again says it like this. Solomon wrote that language, those words that we had used at the outset of the lesson. He that looks lightly, he that ignores counsel, despises his own soul. But on the other hand, he that pays attention gets understanding. Are you and I getting understanding or are we despising our own soul? One way to do it is to ignore that counsel, to do the things we learned in the first part of the lesson this morning. I hope that in this lesson we've each been reminded that those words and proverbs are given for our serious consideration. As we close this lesson today, how important is it then to listen with care, to pay attention to those words sent in our way by those who care about us and those who are interested in our well-being. Today it might be that there's one or more in this audience that isn't right with God. If so, God is rebuking you at this very moment, and throughout the Word of God He does so. He admonishes you to repent. He admonishes you to confess sin, if that's the thing and the need in your life, and to do so at once. For indeed, today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And so if you are an alien sinner, one that has never been baptized for the remission of your sins... Realize at this point those sins are still hanging over you like the darkest cloud imaginable. And they will lead, if you don't get forgiveness for them, to eternal ruin for you. Jesus came and shed precious blood that you might be saved. Will you spurn Him any longer? Will you keep Him at distance and at bay any longer? Why not come to Him at once? Don't spurn the admonition He's given you, but listen effectively to it. The plan of salvation demands you repent of sins following your belief. You confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God and you be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him, but you have since become unfaithful, you've acted in ways that again you perhaps have spurned admonition and advice that others have given you, you have openly brought reproach and disgrace to yourself and the church, don't remain in that condition. The Lord begs you to come back to Him. That can be accomplished as we pray for forgiveness. And if you'll let us know, we'll be happy to pray on your behalf today. If anything stands between you and your God and we could be of help to you, don't spurn His advice. Please listen to it effectively. And if we can be of assistance, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.